0: Hello and welcome to Start Your Week from the Bunker. It'll be a short one today as Rishi Sunak has put a cap on the number of minutes we're actually allowed to broadcast. Well, we were pushing our look, I suppose. I'm Jacob Jarvis and joining me today is iColumnist and oh god what now regular Hannah Fern. Good morning, Hannah. Good morning. Hannah, we're back in this Tory psychodrama vortex, which seems like it could be my intro every single week, <laughs> yes. unfortunately. Uh, we'll, obviously, we'll talk about Boris Johnson, but... I don't like to always put him first. So let's talk about the the price cap situation. This supermarket price caps proposal is causing a bit of controversy just because it's not very not very Thatcherite, is it? What's the fallout going to be here?
1: It's very unconservative. This is an interesting one. It feels quite panicky to me, albeit with if it goes ahead a positive outcome for the poorest people who are really struggling now in the middle of the cost of living crisis. I think Sunak has gone for it to distract partly from the fact that Project Fear was right. And we're partly in this mess, not entirely. Obviously, a lot of Europe is also facing incredibly high inflation and so on. But we're partly in this mess because of Brexit. Food prices are high everywhere, but they are predicted to rise here further this year on top of the existing inflation rate due to customs rules and additional red tape coming in. There's still more of it to come in. So Sunak's looking for something to do that I think, you know, ordinary voters can fill in their back pocket. And he's worked out that staples such as bread, milk and so on, which are all under discussion, can actually be capped more easily. Although it's worth saying that the proposal is voluntary, not a mandatory and post cap. He's hoping all the supermarkets will get on board because they're produced in the UK. So they're not subject to these constantly shifting import costs. But yeah, so un as you say, very unconservative generally, there is a backlash and not only from his own party, not surprising that people, the likes of John Redwood and like Ian Duncan Smith and so on, exactly who you'd expect, are furious about this idea of tinkering in the markets. But there's also a backlash from retailers who are trying to survive in a really tough climate at the moment and obviously facing the impact of rising supply chain costs too, but also energy bills, fuel bills for distribution, all of those things, they all really impact on retailers. So they're just looking at this with raised eyebrows as well.
0: I'm imagining a little John column with a really violent Looking bottle of milk in <laughs> yeah. the middle of it. Yeah. Is Sunak just gonna keep pushing for this despite the this this backlash? Or could this be another U-turn where he's just looked like he doesn't understand his party here once again and he's just gonna to capitulate to them?
1: He might go for it, even though he is sort of ironically creating another internal culture war, as it were. Because other countries have done something similar. So France has also done something similar. But then, you know, importantly, he doesn't want the right of his party to think he's emulating France. That's a dangerous position to be in. But he might go for it because he probably cares at this point more about what the electorate thinks and how they feel it in their pockets than some elements of his party. Because it's such desperate days now as we head into the next 12 months before the election that he's got to do something, I suppose.
0: You mentioned it's voluntary. Is this going to cause a load of drama for Sunak and then potentially just be completely pointless anyway, both for him and for consumers, if it's just something that people can choose to do and then, I suppose, choose to stop doing whenever they might feel like it?
1: Yes, if they do it, they're going to have to do it in a block, surely. I mean, it's not like some kind-hearted, you know, waitrose is going to do it and, and little won't or something. I mean, it's got to be a block, surely. Retailers, as I said, are working on these incredibly tight margins, and they actually are going to find it very difficult to agree to, even if they want to be seen to be doing the right thing in terms of their yeah. PR. So quite staggering to see that kind of voluntary co- request from a conservative PM when they are supposed to believe in the markets above all else.
0: I suppose with major supermarkets as well, it's this, this, on their PR, it's not like really people can particularly en masse choose to stop using them. Uh, they are something, there's not really, there's not a massive amount of different options.
1: No, they can only shift between them. And that's why it feels like you won't see one doing it and another not, because it would simply lead to consumer choice moving to that. Yeah. You know, the, the one that chooses to, to go for it, particularly at the, at the lower end of the market. So Tesco, little Aldi, the ones that are the cheaper options. Yeah. You, you can't imagine that it, that it would be one and not the others.
0: So Boris Johnson, he's back looking like this big political Kevin the teenager at the moment. <laughs> That's exactly
1: what he looks like. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, me and Andrew speaking over the weekend and said, oh my God, his, just his face. is just it's like, He's like a, a walking sulk at all times. It's just it's so embarrassing. What is happening with the, the COVID inquiry at the moment?
1: Well, the government is being dragged, to use the Kevin analogy, kicking and screaming towards a deadline to release the... WhatsApp messages that that have been exchanged uh, between um, government ministers and Boris Johnson and others uh, to the COVID inquiry. And presumably, it's partly being dragged because of Boris Johnson's own tantruming. Um, The government claims that the messages that haven't yet been released and that they don't want to release are not pertinent to the inquiry and therefore shouldn't have to be disclosed and johnson is also citing national security concerns as a reason to withhold but the inquiry wants to see them and is asking for access the deadline is 4 p.m. tuesday today as we record but the inquiry actually doesn't have any legal power to i think as far as i can tell and as far as the, the advice given to boris seems to be the, the inquiry doesn't have any legal power to compel them to actually Hand, hand it over if they don't want to. And Boris is indeed saying he may take legal action to deny them access. So this is a big old strop about what, as far as I can see, and and, and, and as, as being reported, is the business of government being done in a closed loop system. So inside WhatsApp, of course we should have access to these things. It's quite a staggering statement to claim that, you know, that this shouldn't be released and to, and to go to such lengths to, prevent uh, access to these messages.
0: As far as I can see, it would appear that ministers and perhaps Boris Johnson himself just didn't actually understand the scope of what the COVID inquiry wanted to do. And that appears to be what they are they're saying back when they're pushing back.
1: Yes, exactly. There is this dispute over what is pertinent. And I think that if you establish something like such a wide-ranging inquiry... And and that was done, let's be honest, partly to assuage the public who were furious about what they were seeing coming out of um, number 10 and the cabinet office. Why would you then seek to frustrate that thing that you had developed unless, you know, there's something really explosive in those messages (laughs) and then more than ever we need to see them.
0: Is this uh, just highlighting a sort of lack of foresight from ministers and a lack of attention to detail? It's not only showing that there are things here which could be revealed, which could be embarrassing for Boris Johnson ministers, but it's also showing that they, they seem to just not be able to game plan two steps ahead at any point, which I find quite concerning in every single context when they're running the country.
1: Yeah, I think there's a few things going on. The first is that I think people do understand that these were really unique circumstances. And it, it, you know, Managing the pandemic was something that no government had, had to do in any recent years. There was no precedent. And people do understand how difficult that might, might have been. And some of it is forgivable as a result of that. Yes, things were thrown about on WhatsApp, I'm sure, rather than on official channels. Ever at the speed of the thing, the severity of it. People are understanding, but this kind of lack of transparency isn't understandable. So uh, whether it's lack of foresight, lack of attention to detail, it's like uh, we expect to see some panic here and we will absorb that. What we don't expect is to be told that we have no right to understand what did happen during such difficult circumstances. The other thing that's really quite frustrating is the the anger that's, that's surrounding this from the Johnson camp, all his supporters. They are furious that the more recently revealed details of another alleged lockdown breaking party were leaked from what is thought to be an insider in the cabinet office. And they're searching for, and this is the term they use, the ratty rat who broke cover. Now that language just drives me mad. It's such a kind of Eton tuck shop scandal type thing. It makes me want to scream. This isn't a game. Lockdown stripped people of their most basic right their liberty and although i'm not a lockdown skeptic the way this is still now being treated like some kind of you know playground game makes me incredibly cross and so the fact that they're not willing to just front up what happened and, and show it to the light it doesn't show anybody in in, in a good um good light here
0: yeah, telling tales on the Prime Minister shouldn't really be something that we're, we're, we're having <laughs> a go at people for, I know. really. ratty
1: rat, it's ridiculous.
0: <laughs> <laughs> on other MPs causing a stir and seemingly thinking they could avoid all scrutiny, it would appear, how did any of them think that they could pay fines with expenses?
1: I know. That's not how an expensive <laughs> system works, does it? Yeah. Uh, surely not one of them would think that if they were, say, incurred a speeding fine on a commute to a normal office job, that they could just throw it in, you know, with their uh, with their business meal out as an extra cost. What a load of nonsense. So this is four MPs, including Amanda Soloway, who was a minister, who, who got fines for traffic offences and have just thrown them on their expenses claim. Um, and they're not all Tories, it's worth saying. There is an SNP member in that four. I wonder if has so long passed since the original MPs' expenses scandal exposed by The Telegraph back in, I think, 2009, that the kind of shock and awe factor of that moment in politics has worn off. Um, this is sort of a new generation of MPs who weren't all affected at that time. I, I mean, are they testing the new system out for size maybe? Yeah. I don't know. What a strange thing to assume you could do.
0: Yeah, I really can't. I can't imagine submitting that receipt. <laughs> I, <know. laughs> I, just, I don't know. I know.
1: It just feels
0: so utterly shameless which, to, which, to put that forward. The fact that
1: four of them did it as well, it feels like it's not necessarily just a brazen chancer. Is it that there nobody is checking receipts again? That things yeah. are just getting thrown through and there's no itemization. So so something get, got dropped in by accident. I don't know. But I mean, it's one of two things, isn't it? Either there's not the kind of attention to detail on the oversight that there should be, especially since, you know, post-2009, or, or people really are that cheeky. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Either looks bad.
0: <laughs> on a final Westminster note, the NHS workforce plan was expected this week. But is that basically not going to happen now?
1: Rumours are that it's being delayed yet again. We don't know how how long. And remember, this has already been delayed for a year already. So um, we're looking at a delay on a delay. Steve Barclay, the health secretary, has not confirmed when it will be published. And the delays are reportedly down to the cost of the project. So everyone involved can't agree, and one assumes that civil servants as well as politicians, how much to commit financially to the job. This is a very expensive project. It includes things like the expansion of nursing apprenticeships. Investment in people is an expensive thing. There's, there's a lot, lot in, the, in the project. But I don't know. Is this a dying government refusing to accept that it needs to spend on such an important job? There's nothing more important than the NHS and its people right now. And I would have imagined they would want the meat of this plan, the Conservatives, including the size of that financial commitment, to form part of their manifesto. So if not now, when? And and the other thing is that it would actually be, to actually do this now, to push it through, make make a decision, make an agreement on that figure and go for it, would be a rare example of them actually doing something (laughs) because at the moment there's not a lot of doing. And a lot of the conservative right are talking in the press openly on on debate programmes about we've had... Thirteen years of Conservative government and what have they done? You know, there's a lot of disquiet about that. So why would you not want to do something? It's strange to see it delayed again. And I think we might I mean we it never sees the light of day uh, for this Parliament.
0: It feels like a lot of the problems at the moment, Hannah, could be answered by going, is this a dying government? And then you're saying, <laughs> Yes. Yes. <laughs> because yes it, yes, it you know, is. It is. <laughs> <laughs> Hannah, what's the latest from the conflict in Ukraine? So Russia has launched major drone strikes on Kyiv over the weekend, and then Moscow has reportedly been hit back. Can we expect more of this in the coming days? And is it shifting anything in terms of the conflict?
1: Yes, this was the biggest ever drone attack on Kyiv, apparently. Uh, And what was unusual about it more than anything was that the barrage continued during daylight hours, which doesn't usually happen. And it meant that children were in schools at that time and were forced to flee to shelter. And it's sort of a new amoral turn, really, in that sense. So no wonder that there was a retaliation. Yes, we should expect more, but the intelligence from inside Ukraine is quite confusing. So there's a couple of things that are really important to note. The first is that When that barrage came over Sunday night, the Ukrainian Air Force says that it shot down 37 of 40 Russian cruise missiles and 29 of 35 drones. So they were able to protect themselves a little. But they're now uh, talking about their concerns about running out of anti-aircraft ammunition, much of which is very old, actually, from the Soviet era. So they're concerned about their preparedness to continue to take that level of onslaught. But there's also some confusing intelligence coming From inside Ukraine as well, reports in the Washington Post suggest that Ukrainians fighting outside Bakhmut, which is partly taken by Putin, at least partly, if not a secure stronghold for them, have seen Russian mercenaries in retreat there. So it's it's hard to to be clear exactly what's happening in Bakhmut. So yes, difficult to see what the end game is now, and the only conclusion I think we can draw from. This weekend's uh, events is that we are well into what is set to be a very long-running conflict.
0: Erdogan got himself another term in Turkey over the weekend. What's he going to do with this refreshed mandate in the short term?
1: Well, he's talked about tackling inflation. He had to say in his speech that quote, "Nobody is hungry," which raises the question: Why are you saying that? (laughs) Turkey is suffering very badly under forty-four percent annual inflation, a huge cost of living crisis. So that's one of his priorities. So he says. He's also rather chillingly suggested that he's going to offer a voluntary, he says, return of one million Syrian refugees. What a voluntary return looks like when you're calling it a return, I'm not sure. But uh, the future for Syria's refugees inside Turkey looks very uncertain now. He's talked about rebuilding earthquake hit regions, which is obviously essential for him politically. But there are reasons to be really concerned as well in terms of Turkey on the global stage he's he's obviously continuing to cozy up to Putin and plays a significant role actually in you know potentially what the future of the Ukraine conflict is he has committed to keep opposition activists behind bars so no change there in terms of uh, democracy inside Turkey and he has also already and his first sort of victory speech attacked the LGBT community so opponents are warning that the only thing he will actually achieve in the very short term, in fact, is just an acceleration of the brain drain that Turkey is already experiencing. So this is um, a difficult time for the country and um, what happens in the next year might be quite informative for its for its future under Erdogan.
0: And finally, on world news that we're taking a look at today, Biden seems to have a deal to stop the US hitting the debt ceiling there. Can we expect this to go through smoothly Or will the sort of MAGA diehards on the right of the Republican Party tank it just because they think, we fucking hate this guy, so let's do
1: that? Yeah, he struck the deal he was hoping for with Kevin McCarthy, but like you say, the kind of wing nuts on the hard right of the GOP, they still want him to sink it. Luckily, there aren't any signs that McCarthy is quite so stupid as that faction of mm. the party. And he has said himself that he, he claims 95% of Republicans in the House were actually excited about this. I think excited is quite a strange word to use. You know, it's probably relieved ought to be a better one, but yeah, excited
0: says, that we will simply pay our debt.
1: and and keep the country and the economy functioning and pay public sector workers uh, what they're owed yeah weird bit of language to to use but but there we are so it it looks like the signs are quite positive on that one
0: it's it's quite worrying to me when kevin mccarthy is the very much not the voice of reason (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah Uh, hannah thank you for joining me for start your week today thank you And listeners, thank you for joining us for The Bunker. If you like what we do, you can back us on Patreon for episodes ad-free and early from £3 a month. You'll also get a shout-out on this show. Here is Hannah with today's.
1: Thank you to Andy Chappell, Sean Cowley and Geraldine McCullough.
0: That's start your week. Join us for another edition of The Bunker tomorrow. I'm Rob Hutton and I grew up watching war movies with my dad, but my kids just don't get it so I had to find someone to watch them with me. And that's me, Duncan Weldon. And I do get it. So I was only too happy to join Rob and guests such as Al Murray, Helen Lewis, and Saturn Sangara as we re-watch the greatest war movies of all time. So join us on War Movie Theatre to talk about classics from Where Eagles Dare to Zulu to The Sound of Music. That's War Movie Theatre, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: The Bunker was written and presented by Jacob Jarvis and Hannah Fern. The producers were Katrina and me, Jade Bailey. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis and the group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson, Start Your Week from the Bunker is a Podmasters production.